Hello, everyone. I'm Alan Potcotter, and you're listening to Call Talk for June 16th. Today's topic is key takeaways on hiring insights in 2021. If you're listening live, we invite you to be part of the show and ask questions. Here's how you do it. You can email me at calltalk at benchmarkportal.com. I want to remind everyone that all of our shows are archived and available to listen to at benchmarkportal.com any time of the day. And with that, I would like to introduce the host of the show, Bruce Belfiore. Thank you, Alan, and welcome back to Call Talk, everyone. Hiring has gotten more complicated recently due to legal, contractual, and pandemic-related issues. We've certainly felt this in the contact center industry, and that's why we wanted to bring you some key takeaways on hiring insights in 2021. And we brought in an expert on the topic for you, Christine Kunin, CEO of Hire Image, who has been on Call Talk in the past as well. Welcome back to the show, Christine. Thanks, Bruce. It's great to be back. I'm excited to be here. Okay, great. I think this is the three-peat for you. So uh, really <laughs> I have a, I have a hat trick going on. <laughs> <laughs> you got a hat trick going on. And uh, the other shows were extremely well-received, so I know this one will be as well. Well, Christine, for those of you who don't know her, has been CEO of Higher Image LLC, a certified uh, WBE for the last 16 years. And her company is nationally accredited, specializing in background screening and drug testing. She is past chair of the Professional Background Screeners Association and active with the Society of Human Resource Management, known as SHRM, at both the national and the local levels. Uh, She's a frequent speaker at events throughout the country. Well, Christine, I, I understand you recently had a conversation about hiring insights with the former Equal Employment Opportunity Commissioner, uh, and acting chair, Victoria Lipnick. That's great. Uh, what, a, what a great source and a great uh, opportunity to talk to someone who has been in the thick of it all. How was that conversation? Uh, you know, Bruce, it was a great conversation. I had met her years ago through my affiliation with being chair of the Professional Background Screeners Association and kind of meeting with the EEOC uh, commissioners at the time. Um, and that kind of just kept the connection and uh, asked her to be part of uh, – part of our uh, quarterly webinar so and with so much going on across all the industries in regard uh, to post-COVID operations and changing laws uh, affecting marijuana criminal justice reform and employer lawsuits uh, Ms. Lipnick uh, she offered some refreshing perspective on issues that affect us all and some kind of insights that maybe some folks aren't even thinking about. Hmm, that's great uh, great to have the heads up on those things well what, what were your biggest takeaways from your conversation with her? Well, there were a few, but I'd have to say the biggest takeaway for me uh, was kind of her analysis on the new Biden administration and how it's focused on big data and its usage and how it might be a factor in systemic uh, racism. So from an employer's perspective, you know, what she pointed out is they need to know where their data is coming from and how it's used. So, for example, uh, you know, and I'm sure with the contact center world, uh, many companies have streamlined the hiring process, you know, to make things quicker. But by using software and assessing resumes and asking questions and rating applicants using software programs, you know, do you know how that data and algorithms are working? So do the companies really understand what's in that formula? You know, for she gave an example of, you know, excluding certain zip codes might uh, exclude certain min- minority communities. Um, and does that have an impact? Uh, do the assessment tools have inherent bias built into them? So those are factors that uh, users likely don't even know that are built into the system. 
Uh, but what she really stressed, and, and my advice to your listeners would be really, you know, for uh, folks to look at those tools, know what they're using, ask the providers of the underlying, you know, programs, what, you know, how are the algorithms built, how are they being used, really understand it because someone in the government might come knocking and kind of saying, oh, I, I didn't know or I'm using this company is not going to be a, a good enough answer. Mm, wow, that is a really important point. Uh, it's sort of like, I'd say, having your CPA do your taxes. You know, they are the experts, right, in a very complex subject area. Yeah, you're the one who's at the on the hook at the end of the day. So, exactly. Um, great yeah. point. That's yeah. a great way to look at it. Yeah, wow. Okay. And so this is a possibility for additional uh, administrivia and uh, bureaucracy on the part of your company that you're going to have to uh, look into and perhaps uh, pay somebody to do, but it's, you're going to have to do it, unfortunately, just because of uh, the fact that it, it's going to need to be done. Um, well, that actually also is sort of a logical sequel to another question. Uh, with a renewed focus on criminal justice reform and equity for all, uh, does background screening get looked upon unfavorably by some? And do employers need to be aware of any changes from that perspective? Uh, what can you tell us that could be of use to our listeners? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Bruce. Um, you know, it's important to have a pathway for those, obviously, that are formerly incarcerated. It helps all of society, right? If we get those uh, folks back to work, earning money, staying out of the criminal justice uh, system, I think, you know, as a society, we can all agree on that. Um, there are, you know, many programs in place to assist employers to hire these folks, and actually uh, the Society of Human Resources, or SHRM, um, has a whole program aimed at this through their Getting Talent Back to Work platform, and I encourage folks to go out there and look at it, um, oh. you know, if they're, if they're looking to hire some folks uh, that were formerly incarcerated. But like any other difficult policy issue, right, there's, it's not a kind of <laughs> one-size-fits-all. There's always the flip side, and, and I, you know, we've got to make sure that that's always part of the conversation, too. It needs to be balanced. So who's likely to reoffend? For how long after a crime is the person considered not to be at risk for reoffending? Those are some of the things, you know, and, and I know I always feel bad for employers, like, how are they supposed to know, you know, if someone's been rehabilitated, if they might have, uh, you know, commit a crime again. And there was a recent study by the Bureau of Juris, Juris, ah, Justice Statistics, sorry, tongue-tied there, mm -hmm. um, but they provided an update on prisoner recidivism, and they found that 83% of state prisoners that were released in 2005 were rearrested at least one time in the past, in that nine-year span when they did their study. Um, that's a pretty high percentage when, when you're looking at folks and hiring at your workplace. So kind of balancing that. Um, but oftentimes in the work that we do, when we're, when we're reporting back criminal records to employers, we're seeing it all the time. It's not like a one and done. A lot of times that someone has one crime that they committed, a lot of times we'll see, uh, you know, recurring type of behavior. So that's something for employers to be aware of. But how can an employer who needs to ensure the safety and security of their workplace and their communities they operate in know who might reoffend and who's going to be a good employee. They're faced with, you know, difficult decisions and there's impacts on both sides. But, you know, with all that being said, and you said, you know, you asked, is it look at, looked at unfavorably? And I, I'd say it is by some, you know, many legislators, you know, obviously to fix systemic racism. There's studies out there that, you know, more African-American or Latino men tend to have criminal records than their counterparts. Um, so they, they try to legislate it. Um, 
but sometimes, you know, when legislators get in there, they don't exactly know all the ins and outs of it. So, um, you know, they try to limit it. But employers, you know, they shouldn't have an outright ban. But, you know, I'd say the big areas they try to kind of legislate is what's called the the ban the box, which I just did air quotes, but obviously you can't see that on the <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> uh, ban the box really um, started out with, taking that question off the initial application, have you ever been convicted of a crime? So you're giving those folks a shot at interviewing, showing their talents, having those discussions of maybe explaining what happened and their situation. Um, so that kind of, you know, is in a lot of states throughout the country. But then it's also now turned into what they call fair chance hiring initiatives. And some of those laws may be a little more restrictive, but, you know, I just, I, I caution legislators, don't limit it too much that employers then don't have the right information. I have to tell you, I'm, you know, it's not a, it's not a fun hobby I, hobby I have, but I'm always watching the news and when I see these, like, workplace shootings or, you know, this, mm. people committing certain crimes, I'm like, I, I always look to say, oh, did they have a prior record? And I'd say 90% of the time they do. So, um, you know, there's, <laughs> there's issues out there, and it, it, like I said, it's, it's a bigger policy issue than, you know, just a simple answer. Uh, but ho hopefully wow. that answered your question. <laughs> that was a great answer to a very, very difficult and complex uh, question. That's absolutely sure. It's true. And, um, you know, you, you think in terms of uh, what the crimes are, the prior crimes are, because some of them are going to be much more uh, problematic than others. Others uh, could be, you know, uh, considered criminal acts, but much less of a problem for employers uh, going forward, particularly if some of these uh, crimes were from when somebody was very young. Um, right, and you know, yeah. Bruce, I just want—I just want to add to that too. Uh, what makes it really difficult for employers is it's not just like a federal law, and everybody has to follow the same thing. There's all these different laws at the state and local level. So if you have locations in multiple states, you might have to follow the law one way. And you know, I, I just pick on California and New York <laughs> as kind of the the beacons of really making it difficult for employers. But you know, em uh, these employers have to really consider where they're where they're hiring and, and what those laws are as well. Okay. No, thank you. That's a, a great response. Well, another, you mentioned the background screening at their locations. Uh, now that the pandemic has ushered in this new remote workforce uh, thing, how, how does that impact the hiring process? Yeah. Um, another good question. I know, uh, you know, more and more folks are working remotely and, and might stay that way. So, uh, the new remote workforce, that was another big takeaway for me with my conversation with former EEOC Commissioner Lipnick was the importance of handling the remote situation on a job posting. I hadn't even thought of that, but really if you want to make sure folks are coming into your contact center or your office, um, it's important for the employer to post that on their job posting to uh, let folks know it's not a remote position. If it is a remote position, that's fine. You could post that as well. Uh, but for those that are remote, employers just they need to know that they got to follow those employment laws in the state and city the employee will be working, not just where their home base is, but you know if they're over a border in another state, um, they have to follow the laws. Um, you know, and it, it could be overwhelming. So I definitely recommend consulting with an employment attorney if you're going to be in multiple states, especially if you're having remote 
employees. But as far as background screening, uh, likely there's going to be laws to be considered, and the background screening company should be able to assist folks in there. You know, hopefully you don't need the attorney to figure that out, but you never know. I always, I always caution, though, checking with an attorney. But, um, but there's always uh, these specific state and local notices that are required, so folks want to be looking at that. And then drug testing is another area to be thinking about because there's different rules in different states as far as, you know, what, what employers can test for and all that good stuff. So there are things to consider. You know, there's two things that come to mind uh, just with regard to these this topic. And, and one is uh, the stats that we saw come out of our surveys of contact centers in terms of at-home agents. And uh, the most recent one that we did indicated that pre-pandemic, uh, 15% of the contact center workforce approximately was at home already. Uh, then as of the time that we took the survey, which was still high pandemic, it was January of this year, 2021, 85% were still working from home. And the question was then, what would you expect, more or less on a steady state, as of the end of 2021 would be the percentage of your workforce which would be working from home. And uh, if you put all the respondents together, it was about 50-50. So that is pretty remarkable, uh, the yeah, number of I'm people not, yeah. who are going I'm not to surprised be. surprised by that. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. definitely, definitely what we're hearing, too, from our uh, clients, that they're realizing the work can get done at home. So, But there's certain, there's certain folks that need to be in an office, but there's some that definitely can be working from home. So not surprising. Mm -hmm. I think we're, we've ushered in a new era of this uh, remote employee. Right, right, which has a lot of advantages, uh, that's for sure. Um, then the, the other thing that, that comes to mind as you were talking was the costs uh, that are involved with the screening that has to have to be taken into account. And the reason I mention that is because one of the things that we uh, see with a lot of our clients is that they have turnover rates that in some cases are considerably above their industry averages. And so one of the things that we help them to do is to determine the cost of turnover. And to determine the cost of turnover, you have to put in all the ingredients. And the ingredients include the recruiting, uh, the screening, uh, the um, onboarding, the training, uh, the putting through the uh, nesting period. So there's, there, if anything, there have been more costs added with regard to the screening uh, period or the screening component uh, because you have uh, screening that's not just ability screening but also these other things like the drug testing and background checks, et cetera. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I will say, though, that there's more and more push in legislation to uh, – limit when a background check can get done. And I know a lot of the contact centers we work with, they're trying to get people to work as quickly as possible. So they might be doing a background check on people they never hire, but they're just trying to get as many people through the system as possible so they have a class to, you know, start their next class. So, um, mm -hmm. But if the laws change, they might have to wait till post-offer. Um, it's oh. not there yet at a federal level. A lot of the local levels have it. But that would, uh, you know, kind of limit the cost, but then also slow down the process, right? Because they'd have to wait until they had the perfect candidate. Instead, a lot of these contact centers just moving so quickly through the process just want to have as many qualified people as possible to choose from. Right, 
Right. Uh, it can be another reason to try to find ways to keep your existing seasoned agents as well, yeah. keep them happy, keep them on board so that you don't have these costs because oftentimes those costs are not considered and uh, therefore ways to reduce turnover which may cost a little bit of money in terms of, for instance, training or uh, incentives or gamification or things like that. Um, the, the ROI can actually be quite high when you consider how much it costs to actually bring a new person on board and up to uh, competency. So, uh, well, that great and especially, points. Yeah, that and especially it's just uh, harder to find people. So the more you can keep people mm-hmm. employed, <laughs> the better. Right, right, exactly. Well, you know, there has been a lot of uh, in the news about marijuana, and we've talked about this on our previous shows as well that, that you've done with us. Uh, what do employers need to know now? Uh, well, as it relates to marijuana, that's going to continue to be a hot topic, and we're going to continue to see legislation. So just this past, uh, you know, November election was, was a hot-button uh, issue of legalizing marijuana. So that we had Mississippi and South Dakota approve medical marijuana, New Jersey, Arizona, Montana, um, all, and South Dakota legalized recreational marijuana. <clears throat> but South, South Dakota actually made history this year with being the first one to pass medical and recreational all at the same time. So it was definitely uh, on the ballot this year. It was a hot topic, and I, I don't see it going away. But definitely want to point out a couple of uh, striking things that, that stick out to me and definitely for your listeners that are in these areas. Uh, there is a, now a ban on pre-employment testing on marijuana in the state of Nevada, in New York City, and in Philadelphia. And what's tricky is, you, you know, you might have something set up with your provider. When someone goes into the lab just because it's Philadelphia or New York City or Nevada, the lab's not going to know to not test for marijuana. So it really is a different testing panel that they have to ask for. Um, you know, so they they really have to be aware of that. So if you're in those areas, you should not be testing for marijuana. You can still test in other areas for pre-employment, but really you got to be careful. Uh, but there's just a lot of uncertainty surrounding marijuana's status as whether it's legal or not, uh, the CBD use or cannab- cannabinoid oil, um, and the employer's obligation to provide accommodations, uh, you know, for definitely those medical marijuana cardholders. So it's definitely mm-hmm. confusing. <laughs> No, this is a kind of a checkerboard of uh, of issues. And uh, so the next question would be, you know, has the pandemic impacted drug screening? I mean, in the sense of uh, not what the policies are, but what the practice is, being able to actually get, um, uh, you know, labs to do them when they are appropriate. When you were on last time, you were predicting uh, really that because of what was going on with the pandemic, that those labs were going to be kept really busy with tests for covid and uh, tell me, or tell us, what uh, what actually happened. Yes, so um, that's right. The last time we were on, we were talking all COVID-related and drug testing, and um, it, it did have a tremendous impact on how and when and where drug screenings uh, were performed. Uh, definitely saw a lot of labs, uh, you know, moving over to maybe doing COVID testing, so then they wouldn't allow even um, the urine testing. So, And then we also had many applicants, they were just reluctant to go for the drug test, right, at a facility that they thought, what if there's somebody who has COVID or if they're, that facility's uh, conducting COVID-19 testing. So employers had to address and alleviate those concerns of the applicants 
And then, you know, with those employees refusing to go, you know, were they refusing because of that <laughs> or um, because maybe they, they didn't want to take a drug test? So one of the possible solutions we came up with, and it's starting to, like, work itself out now at the labs, obviously, um, you know, mm-hmm. now that kind of things are popping back up in, in, in the environment out there. Um, it's not quite as bad, but there's still some residual effects. Uh, but one solution we worked out with some employers was um, kind of looking at maybe doing oral fluid testing. And when I say oral fluid testing, I don't mean the cheap ones that you buy online because they're not really great. You know, you get what you pay for. But the oral fluid lab-based testing, um, we did have some employers that moved to that. So this way folks could do it, you know, sitting at home and then mail it in the packet. Uh, we always recommended folks would, you know, the hiring manager or whoever the hiring person was, was to watch it remotely um, and go through it. So the testing kits, it was easy. You send it to the applicant at their home, and then they were able to provide that sample. Um, but, you know, if, if employers go that way or if they consider it, you know, there's things to consider internally. You have to update your policies and protocols and, and really looking at do you want to switch. It's cost Cost-wise, it's about the same, moving over to oral fluid lab-based. So something to consider. It's less invasive. You don't have to be at a lab. But um, I will say, you know, folks folks are definitely looking at it. It's just a faster alternative, too. Plus, sometimes uh, the contact centers, they'll lose applicants that never show up at the lab, right? So if you have that mm-hmm. oral fluid uh, lab-based testing, and especially on-site, um, it's easier to just kind of have that done at the time they come in for the interview and get that out to the lab so and then get those tests back quicker okay and the oral fluid testing that's uh, another way of saying a spit test is that right yes saliva testing yep saliva <laughs> and, okay. and you know good, the good. other the other the other thing to mention with that bruce is one of the reasons i like that test is it has come a long way in years um past but the urinalysis test really it can see the marijuana usage or THC in the system for up to 30 days for habitual users. The oral fluid testing is a more recent test um, to see is it in the system. So that's another positive for the oral fluid. There is no, uh, I will state it here because that always becomes a question, um, is there is no test today to say is somebody high right now. Um, they're just is not out there at the moment. I wish we could all invent it and uh, we could become gazillionaires if we did, but it's, <laughs> it's just not out there right now. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, there's, there's an awful lot on the plate here. Then you've uh, really picked through it extremely well for us. So thank you for doing that. I think, you know, when we think about the position of the employers, when we think about the position of the um, potential employee, uh, we think about where the government's role in all of this, you know, the uh, picking through the, the fairness, the equity issues, uh, good judgment, and good management issues are all extremely important for our listeners to consider. And uh, some really difficult questions here, but uh, ones that need to be addressed. So thank you. Thank you very much. These are really great insights, uh, Christine. And I noticed that Alan has some uh, questions for you. Should we pass it over to Alan? Yes, we have a first question here from Lauren, and she's asking, if a person does not smoke or use marijuana edibles, can they still fail a drug test by using CBD creams or oils? Well, that's a that's a good question. Uh, the CBD market right now, it's not regulated, uh, so that meaning that there's no way to enforce how much THC is allowed or not allowed in those products. So it is possible for THC to enter the bloodstream using those uh, creams or oils. 
and then they can show up as a positive drug test for marijuana. So what I've been doing, and we've seen it happen, right, in regulated industries especially, right? They have the random testing. They might have a great employee, and then we get a random test. The person has to go get tested, and they fail for THC, and they, they are like, I, I don't smoke. I don't, you know, and then it, it turns out they've been using, you know, maybe they have arthritis and they use the CBD cream. So what I've been doing is encouraging employers, um, especially those in the regulated industries, but just anyone who's testing, um, just to educate the workforce, you know, that, that those stories are out there, that CBD, if it, it can contain THC and can be a reason to fail the drug test. So, And it's also a reason to also consider, if you're an employer, that you're like on the fence, should you test for marijuana or not, and you don't have those safety-sensitive or regulated industries, um, it's it's a th- something to think about on do you want to remove marijuana from your testing um, program because you can get someone who is, you know, really just using an, an oil or putting maybe even putting a cream on their dog who has arthritis that it could get in their bloodstream. So that, that's a good yeah. question. And, and, yes, it's uh, there's no easy answer to it. It's just uh, it could get in your system. Interesting. Okay. And for our listeners uh, who aren't sort of up on all this, the CBD is the part which has medicinal impacts and the THC is the one that has hallucinogenic or whatever impacts. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah, so sort of the high comes from the THC side. Uh, CBD side is the part that uh, is used in these creams. But as you said, the THC could also end up in the CBD cream. So I guess uh, one other thing is if your dog does have arthritis, you might want to put on plastic gloves before you, or rubber gloves before you rub it. <laughs> Exactly. The product is, yeah. <laughs> wow, boy, this is a minefield, isn't it, Christine? Oh, wow. it definitely is. Yeah, uh, but you, you're explaining it really, really well. Well, let, let's go on to another question. Uh, Alan, do you have another one? Yes, we have one more question, and this one is from Ben. He is asking, can employer require his or her employees to get the COVID-19 vaccine before coming back to work? Mm. That, that's another question we're getting quite a quite a bit, um, and yes, and even the, e, the EEOC that we've talked about so much already today um, has said yes, um, employers can absolutely require employees to get the vaccine um, if they're going to be coming back into the office. Um, they can't, though, enforce for medical or religious reasons. You still may have to accommodate uh, under the American with Disabilities Act or the ADA. Um, so, and additionally, telework may become a reasonable accommodation. So, if the job can be done from home, so those are things to consider. But yeah, you definitely um, employers have a right to make sure those that are coming into their workplace are vaccinated. Um, and the EEOC guidance uh, is on their website, and they even say you know employers can offer incentives and and things like that. So, definitely a, a good question. And yes, you can. Mm, okay. Uh, so, therefore, it can be a condition of on-site employment with some accommodations that uh, that you enumerated there. Very good. Okay, well, this has been great. Um, thank you so much, Christine. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say just to wrap things up here at the end? Yeah, I just I just caution employers just to be really careful to know, you know, number one, what they're doing and how they're doing it, because even as I mentioned, the big data and understanding where it comes from, same with background screening, right? There's there's um, requirements of the employer. So a lot of times we'll work with folks and they think we're ha- we do handle it for them. I know I handle things for my clients, but at the end of the day, it's their responsibility under the laws that they're regulated under to understand what they're doing. Um, so 
just to to make sure that you know <laughs> kind of how your data is being used, where is it, where it's coming from, and uh, that you're getting all the proper disclosures, authorizations, and you're giving proper notifications to your to your applicants or employees. Definitely be an important part. Okay. Yeah. No, I think of you as uh, helping clients through the minefield. You know, you got one of those uh, mine mine uh, detectors and <laughs> trying to help help make sure nothing explodes in their face uh, that could end up taking more time and money from them. Okay, well listen, this has been great. Thank you so much. And um, with that I will hand things back over to Alan. All right. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks again to Christine and to Bruce for your insightful discussion on today's show. Be sure to join us next month for another great show or look at our huge selection of archive shows on Hot Topics at BenchmarkPortal.com. Then click on Call Talk where you'll find over 10 seasons of this show. From all of us at Benchmark Portal, keep those headsets steady and your fingers ready. This is Alan Pockhotter signing out. Have a great day.